The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. On today's episode of Looking Up, I'm talking to Tim Story. Quincy Jones calls him the voice of inspiration to this generation. Robert Downey Jr. said, Tim is the comeback coach. And Smokey Robinson said, Tim's story is wonderful at walking people through the best and worst of times. So well, I had to talk to him myself. He's an acclaimed author, speaker, and life coach. He's been featured on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, and he's well known for motivating people of all walks of life, from entertainment execs, athletes, and to adults and children in the most deprived neighborhoods in the country. He grew up in Compton and shares with us how deeply influenced he was by his teachers. And he helps us understand that each of us has been born an original and encourages us not to die a copy. We talk about the idea of recovery and discovery and how we are all always going through something, how Motown music brings him into positivity, and we start to help you to explore what brings you into your own positivity. We talk about triggers, the idea of growing into our skills, resiliency, magic, miracles, and really the mess of it all. How we start looking up is with a little intro section that I like to call looking in. And basically it's just a series of a few rapid fire style questions that um, is really a way for the audience and myself to get to know you a little bit deeper and intimately past what some people might know you for your work. Um, So without much thought, um, the first thing that comes to your mind. So is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? And if so, please share. Yes, a biography about the life of Mother Teresa. Yes, that's incredible. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. People think that I'm more outgoing but I'm actually more quiet. Hmm. When is the last time that you cried? I would say two weeks ago at a funeral that I was officiating of a great friend who passed away way too young. I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. That's just, that's awful. In your high school years, how would you describe yourself in three words? Optimistic, mm-hmm. <laughs> optimistic, and optimistic. <laughs> I love that. Actually, you know, this podcast is all about optimism and resiliency, and nobody has ever answered with those particular three words to describe themselves as a teenager in the high school years. So I'm actually super interested and excited to kind of hear um, why and how cool that must have been in to have that sort of outlook at such a young age. My last question for you is, I know that the day is um, not over yet, but thus far, can you tell me three things that have brought you joy today? Working out with my trainer, because I think it's a good way to start my day. Listening to Stevie Wonder, because I love music, and now talking to you. Ah, the feeling is mutual. I know so many of our listeners probably know exactly who you are. 
but um, you know, not to assume and just in case, I would love to hear a little bit about your story. So what's your story, Tim's story? Yeah, exactly. What is your story, Tim's story? So I think I'm like, you know, everybody, we come from somewhere. So I, I come from Compton, California, same as Dr. Dre, Kendrick Lamar, the Williams sisters. But our childhood was a little difficult. We had seven people in a two-bedroom apartment to start with. And my father had a 10th grade education. My mother had a sixth grade education. And I'll never forget my mother saying one time that we are lower income, but we are not lower class. Mm. And she, she, she defined that. But she was saying it to one of my sisters, but I overheard it. And, but I do remember that we, we, we were kind of caught in what I call an almost life. Like, like if I wanted Levi's, we got like something that were like Levi's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If I wanted Converse tennis shoes, we got something that were like Converse. So my childhood was living almost. And then my father who worked for Beth Lambsteel, started moving us to different parts of LA. And I had great teachers. My third grade teacher, Mrs. Cook, was phenomenal. Mrs. Sullivan, fourth grade, Mr. Probert, fifth grade. They really liked Timmy's story. They saw that I was optimistic and this charisma to me. And they paid attention. And they made me understand that I was a good student as well as a good actor. And so, yeah, that was part of my upbringing. Wow, that's so amazing to hear. I mean, I just the fact that I think the idea of of a teacher is so underestimated and underrated. And oftentimes so many of us can think back to like one or two teachers that actually changed our lives and changed our trajectory or helped us think about a future that maybe we kind of saw, but like didn't really fully understand the path, but sort of unlocked that. And other times you you don't hear those stories. The thing that was so awesome is my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Probert, became my sixth grade teacher. And he was a, a white guy that looked like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and I'll never forget, he said to me, Timmy, because they called me Timmy when I was younger. Timmy, can you wait after class? And, and all the students went, ooh. <laughs> he must be in trouble. So I remember going up to his desk and he had a briefcase and he put it on the desk. He was so organized. He's like full of sweaters. And he said, I have three books that are from my personal library. And I want to see if you want to check out one of these three books that I think will be good for you. Now, this is not extra credit. This is because I think you are. Now, I didn't know what he was going to say. Brilliant. Now, I had never been branded brilliant by anybody. But I'll never forget that I didn't push those words away. And I tell you what, it it really made a mark on me. And like you say, what book did you choose? I chose a book on the life of Michelangelo because I'd seen something on television before about it. And I took that book that was written by Irving Stone. And I later became friends with his wife, who was the editor of that book when I was living in Beverly Hills. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's such a, a good point because so many times when I interview people that come from all different backgrounds and, and and whatever it is that they're doing today, it really like their story really does pinpoint back to some type of of strong mentorship. 
And, you know, and it's not lost on me that that's not necessarily the norm. And it's not, not everybody has, has that strong mentorship, but I often really, really uh, encourage people to seek it out if they can. Because even for myself, I was interviewed on a podcast recently, and it was more so about career and sort of the arc of a career and, and all the different things that you've done to sort of be wherever it is that you are. And I've never really answered those questions and seen it. Like I always knew my path was was definitely not linear, but I'd never seen it sort of laid out that way in sort of yeah. an organized way. And I realized one thing that was really in common throughout my entire, I guess, career since high school on to, you know, a college to grad school was I always had, and even my first few jobs, I always had really, really, um, I was lucky to have really great mentorship. And I really don't think I would be doing anything that I was doing without that because it's really tough um, yeah. without and, sort of a direction and someone that believes in you. And I love that you have been that fortunate to yeah. have people that were interested, but also recognize that you needed them. And, you know, one of the things I do in life coaching is I tell people, like, in order to find your path, number one, you have to become awake. So you become awake. And then I said, I say, number two, you have to take inventory. You got to see, like, how's my life going? Like, clarity of mind, physically, how am I doing with my family, my job, my finances, my social life? So you take inventory, which is very difficult for a lot of people to really take correct inventory, as you know. But the third thing I talk about is what we're saying now is that we have to partner with the right people. And to think that I would have a sixth grade teacher that would label me brilliant and I bought into it and just went with it. (laughs) Pretty interesting. Pretty awesome. It is. It absolutely is. And tell me a little bit about your life coaching journey. Um, When did you become a life coach? When did you even figure out that that was something that you wanted to become? I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I had never heard that that name. I see myself almost more of like a lifestylist or a person just helps people on their journey. So when I read this book about Mother Teresa that was given to me by one of my friends in high school, I decided that I then did not want to go to USC first because that's where I was planning on going. And instead I'd go to seminary because I wanted to be a humanitarian. So Mm. I went to seminary, continued, 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 and then got a doctorate in world religion. But while I was working on that, I took so many classes crisis counseling, therapy, trauma. I was just really connected to that, the counseling classes. Mm -hmm. So when I was in seminary at only 20, I started speaking at inner cities around Florida where I was in seminary. I created my own curriculum, okay, at 19. So I was going in and I had this fancy charisma and the kids were attracted to me. And then I got discovered by some people that do well financially. And they said, we have money and you have a gift. We want to help support you. So I created a nonprofit at 20 years of age. Wow. And started going to different cities in America and then around the world. So I've now been to 75 countries in the world lifting people up. And was it predominantly kids or? It started with kids. 
it started with kids and it's still it's still children today but like our friend Brent we both serve on ARC prison reform I'm very much part of that I'm very much part of the recovery world I help with the elderly so I do a lot in the area of the nonprofit mm-hmm. so when I started it was with kids and then I think their parents found out that I was a pretty good speaker so I I became like a very popular speaker almost by accident it's um as you I think you would agree with this some things we decide some things we discover mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of what I'm about is like I discovered and then I got discovered mm-hmm. so as the humanitarian hitting all these third world nations then it was like by the way would you mind speaking to this group of adults and then it went bam 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 and then took off like a more in a more organic way where your work was actually leading you to your work. 100%. And I like how you say it that way. Very organic, never like, this is my intention. Right. I'll be there in three years. Right. And, you know, I applaud people who like to think that way, but mine's, mine's more organic and very fluid. A lot of my work is with entertainers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, thing is the life coach to the stars for all these years. I never looked for Vidal Sassoon, Lee Iacocca, uh, Charlton Heston, Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau, and then leading into today's major stars that I won't name. But I was never looking for these humans. I had a gift that I became good at, and you know what that's like, and they started looking for me. I love that. There is something so... I don't. I don't. I don't even know the word. I. 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 I don't want to say magical because there is a, a huge part of it that that feels like that, but it's also sheer hard work. Um, yes. But it is this this idea. Um, again, I, I look back to being interviewed on this one podcast and thinking like the same thing. Like none. None of my. I, you know. I deal with optimism and um, evidence based manifestation and creating. You know things that and goals that we want in our life. But at the same time, it was for me, for where I am today uh, and what I do, none of it was intentional either. It was so organic. But I guess the the intentional part was just focusing on what I really, truly believed on in a greater way and sort of kept pushing forward doing that. Not really... Um, not really tied down or focusing on what exactly that would look like or when or anything. Kind of what you talked about when you received some of your strengths, but like just being open. Yeah. And I like how you're framing these words. See, I I think that our calling calls us. Mm. So, you know, good at sports, charismatic personalities, that drew people in high school. So, When I went and saw the guidance counselor, he said, you know, your grades are good enough and you know people and I think you should go to USC. And so that's that's what I wanted to do, be a communications major and also get involved in in, in entertainment. But the calling called me and, and I think we learned primarily three ways, education, conversation, and observation. Mm -hmm. And so when... When I read the book again, Mother Teresa, something hit me. And then I started noticing my observations, like for a guy to be like an athlete who is a good athlete, but I was always concerned about the underdog. Like I remember one time we were in PE class and we were doing this long run 
And it was me and this guy named Don Pasolacqua <laughs> that were the fastest in the short runs and long. That's unusual. It's usually you're good at one or the other. And Don used to beat me in the long distance a lot because he was so doggone tall. <laughs> his legs just looked like, what? This is like unfair. But this particular day, I don't know what was going on, but I had him. And we were very competitive. And I came up on his shoulder and I just, I passed him. And he knew once I passed him, it's it over because I wasn't going to lose. <laughs> but as I was coming around this corner, I saw this kid who was a little bit overweight and he was breathing real hard. It was, remember, it was long distance. We came around again. The second time he was breathing hard again, I thought he's in trouble. And I stopped and I was winning. I stopped and I was winning. And I went to this kid named Freddie. I go, Freddie, what's wrong? He said, I'm having an asthma attack. Now, why did that connect to me? Because my second oldest sister, Viola, what a cool name. She had suffered with asthma since she was a little girl. And I remember what that was like. And then many times my parents would have to take her to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So I saw Freddie, asthma attack. So I took him, I'll never forget. I mean, we're young people. I carried him like this towards a PE coach. I said, he's having an asthma attack. Okay. So I orchestrated this. I comforted him. And I realized that's your life, Tim's story. My calling called me. It wasn't important for me to beat Don Pasolacqua. I was more concerned about Freddie and not having him have that asthma attack and possibly not be okay. Mm. Wow. That's really interesting. And, 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 it's interesting with your story, Tim's story to me, is that a lot of your calling and sort of your mentality really started so young. And I think sometimes people may find that out later, but like the fact that you had this optimistic outlook and you thought about possibilities for yourself that maybe you didn't even see within your own family or the people that that were around you, um, you still saw those opportunities and even the strengths and recognize them in yourself that you could have a life that was different than sort of yes. what you were just born into. And also the fact that you knew your calling at such a young age was really about you know, taking up your empathy and and helping people. How much of your work currently in coaching or lifestyling do you think is impacted by your ministry work? I would say most, but I think that you're stronger in this subject that I'm about to bring up is that I think that this miracle mentality or this magical thinking is is innate. Mm-hmm. And when I've talked to a lot of child psychologists, they, they think so. And that even if the child does not speak it out or, you know, show it in a way that is uh, obvious, they're thinking magical thoughts. You know, they got a pretend friend. Mm-hmm. I'm a princess. I'm going to be an astronaut. So right. I think for me, even little Timmy from Compton, in a troubled family whose father ends up dying when I'm only 10 in a car accident where wow. a man runs a, a red light and my father passes. And then my house felt like a cold garage because it, because it, he, he was the energy of the house. My mother was a disciplinarian. And so it felt like a cold garage. Mm. But even in the midst of that, I had this innate optimism. Like I just knew I was going beyond what I saw. 
But it wasn't like, I'm out of here and I'm not coming back. No, I'm like, I'm coming through and I'm bringing you all with us. Where do you think that came from? I honestly believe it's divine in this case. I've told Oprah this because that's my real friend. And we were in the backyard just talking. She says, I love this thing that you say about how we're all, we've all been spoken over. I believe that I was spoken over and I believe it's divine because like what I get to do, I don't think I could, I could not manipulate myself into this position. Uh, I, I could not connect enough on clubhouse to be this guy. (laughs) I think it's, I think it really is divine. I think Mm -hmm. it's, I divinely was picked up and I decided to respond and prepare and then grow. Do you, in your work, do you help people find their calling and sort of uncover what their calling is? That's where I'm hard to be, to be honest. And do you think that everyone's calling is is divine or and no matter what it is, um, and it's just a matter of sort of receiving it or being open to it and sometimes it, like it hitting you over the head? Um, yes. It, so in your work and in your opinion, all are, we all have a calling. Um, we, all, we all have a calling. There's no doubt about, about it. And I think that every calling, this is where I've done my work probably for 30 years, is I think that our calling is very specific. It's very specific. And a lot of times we're just not paying attention to how specific it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's specific, but it's also unique. Mm. And I say this um, quote that we've been born an original, let's not die a copy. Mm. And so, you know, you have other people that call themselves life coaches or mm-hmm. whoever, or people will say, don't you want to be like that guy or have seminars at that size or do masterminds that would make you even more money? No, because that's what that human is doing. Congratulations, male or female, whatever you're doing. I want to walk worthy of my specific, unique calling. And so that's what I do. So so sometimes it's in the recovery world and sometimes it's with one of the biggest celebrities in the world. So neither one is more important. I think they're both part of my calling. I love that you bring this up because I think in this day and age where everyone sort of in some way has a platform and it seems like everyone can kind of be or do whatever it is that they want to do and they will have an audience of some sort. Um, and especially in the wellness world and and like you say, in the life coaching world, I love that you bring this up because I think there's this notion going around that there isn't uh, enough for everyone. And there's sort of this competitive and also, I don't know, copying or I get people that will send yeah. me like I, I have a I have a deck of cards called the things are looking up optimism deck of cards. And so often over the last six months after, you know, we did it a couple of years ago and, and it's been thankfully people are really resonating with it in a way that I again, I didn't actually develop it as sort of a product to really be out there. It was just an extension of my work and a way to offer people the tips and the tools without having to actually have a session or anything like that. Cause I really believe this stuff is, um, a human right to know these tips Mm -hmm. and tools. And I get a lot of these, you know, DMS in my box kind of showing me pictures and being like, 
oh my gosh, this thing is exactly like that. Like, like I can't believe they copied you or, you know, X, Y, and Z in, in the field, whenever you do something that maybe is a little bit different within the field. And, and I got to be honest, like at first, the first few that I saw, it really did deeply. And I saw that some of these people had actually, I went back and looked and I'm like, they had bought it. Um, and it Amazing. did, it, it yeah. kind of, no matter with all my resources and what I do, it did, it struck me a bit and it made me kind of angry. And then I was able to sit with it and sort of think about it. And I love what you say about like almost staying focused on, on truly what your purpose and calling and offering is. And it doesn't really matter about all the other people. And actually I thought how wonderful that there are options for people and other types of options. And there are other people doing things that are you know, really amazing in the field of self-improvement and growth and helping people. And, and even this is in all different types of fields, but, you know, having that shift, but like, there is that like innate sort of almost gut reaction too. that is like the, ugh, like, I know that's someone that's trying to bite off of what I'm doing, but then, you know, I think that's so interesting. The I, way see a, it. I see it as a, as a fair, reaction by you and i'll tell you why is because i i think by even us talking about the mutual friend that we have Mm -hmm. i i know him so well that he doesn't like counterfeit nor does his wife they're really into like what is real okay there's a depth to them and if you look at their friends they run with that layer of person okay so if you look at your clientele and you look at your work there's a depth to that work. I have been fortunate enough to work with some of the best scientists, professors, best minds, artists, lost people at the highest level, but in a deep, meaningful way. And part of that is what is the motive? What is the motive? And I feel like a lot of people that want to do what you're doing and what I'm doing, their motive is a little bit off because they love to lead. Maybe they like the limelight or they love control or they saw somebody else doing it. So they want the quick steps. A very common thing that I get in my DMs is how do I get to more celebrities? I'm a coach. Mm. Can I tell you something? I don't even respond to those. Yeah, because that motive is not matching with your motive. So it's not about who it is. And what they do that you work with, it's it's about offering your calling to who is sort of ready to receive it and work with 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 whoever. One hundred percent. And in my way of thinking, everybody is a celebrity. To be a celebrity means to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. So if you're like you have two children, you celebrate your children. Oh, They're yeah. celebrities. <laughs> I like so that. All I need is one person to celebrate me. I'm a celebrity. I don't need a huge audience or platform. Now, I think because I have this huge audience in this huge platform, what some of my smarter, older friends have said to me is, you know, Tim, we've always liked this, that that even when you started, when you were so young, you just had this like servant's heart about you. Because, yeah, I wanted to help the Freddies of life. The kid that was having the asthma attack. This was not about becoming bigger and grander and um, 
being the highest in the room. Can you tell me a little bit about what working with you is like? Working with me one-on-one is, uh-huh. is really to, I become very, very good at turning your setbacks to comebacks, mm. of working through your recovery zone and your discovery zone at the same time. Mm, I like that. And, but I was mentored by one of the best, by a lady named Dr. Helen Mendez, who taught at USC. And she mentored me for 17 years. So I believe that everyone that's watching right now is going through two things at once, recovery and discovery. All of us. It could be recovery of things of our childhood, recovery of things we're going through now. Could be marital problems, relationship problems, health problems, problems with your children, problems with your mindset, something. But I find that most people stay in the recovery zone when they're going through pain And they miss the magic that's right here, which is the discovery zone. Because when you're in recovery, you go singular. So a little kid that gets a cold, and let's say the child's seven years of age. Mom, I don't think I can go to school today because I don't feel good. I have a cold. So now it becomes, okay, let's go singular. Okay, let's get this remedy. Let's get that remedy. Let's put you back in bed. No, you can't play with your games today. Just stay there. You still have to do your homework. Everything goes singular. When you are feeling good, you go plural. I want to be out. I want to be about. I want to talk to people, right? So my, my strength is helping you to recover while you discover at the same time. We can do both. That like hits so many chords with me because so much of my work is in resiliency. And it's this idea of working through adversity. And that is a huge part. I think oftentimes people forget, but that's a huge part of actually increasing optimism. It's not really about being positive all the time or, you know, being unable to really like head on reality and what's going on, how we build optimism and, and actually happiness is actually how we work through struggle. So how is your practice informed by this idea of working through adversity? Well, I think that, number one, I love where you're coming from because I've been studying you, (laughs) is that I was reading this thing about mountain climbing, like these people that climb these big mountains. And so in one of the articles that I, I read, it says you have to have the right skills. It broke it down into three things. Tools and attitude. Mm -hmm. And I thought, whoa, that's so good. That's like life. Right. So this is what you teach and what I'm watching and looking at the things that you write about and teach. You're really teaching us skills, tools, and attitude. Absolutely. Yeah. So my resilience, okay, my father passes at 10. Tough stuff. But I grew in my skills, tools, and attitude. So when I hit another rough patch, I grew in my skills, tools, and attitude. It was all a choice. And so I had to make the choice to grow in my skills, tools, and attitude. And so that's why mega negative stuff could hit me because of what I do for a living. If you're a life coach and a comeback coach, I hear a lot of negative stuff, okay? But people always say, you're so calm. Uh, Smokey Robinson said, it's as though you have jazz music 
He says, the cool kind, playing in your mind at all times. And I really do. I'm, I'll be this chill tomorrow as well. But that's really like a tool and a skill that I learned to master. Right. And you practice it every day. I practice it every day. I think that's such an interesting point to drive home. And I try to talk about that all the time is that these skills, tools, and attitude that we're talking about are not things that are just going to fall into your lap. Again, it's not just going to appear because you really want them. They're actually things that take practice and they work and they become easier once you are practicing. But even someone you look at that you think is the most skilled at it is actually continuously working on their practice, being good at it every single day. Yes, because from these mountain climbers, you should see like they're not even happy climbing that one big mountain that you thought was the biggest now, once they get to the bigger mountain, they start saying, okay, I did it in the summer. Now I'm going to do it in the winter. It's like, whoa, okay. So as we continue to escalate in life and as we get older and more mature, and even as people pull on your gifts and my gifts, okay, we have to continue, as you said, to grow and get better and refine our skills, tools, and attitude. But what a beautiful thing. I love learning. Yes. I love, I love learning. Yes. I share that with you for sure. I think when I try to find out what my true purpose is, and I do this exercise with with my clients or with companies, and it's this whole exercise to find your purpose often. And and oftentimes it can change. And I try to do it seasonally, but oftentimes mine is to learn. And um, I'm a lifelong learner. It's probably why I was so happy to be in school for forever. And I could probably continuously going, but I don't know. Um, I think my family would just be like, okay, that's enough. (laughs) But um, I've always loved, I've always loved that. And now what's so interesting is having a three and a half year old who is just literally the most curious person I've ever encountered. I'm learning so much from him about things that you know, may seem like I don't need to know, but but I'm so I I, I think about that all the time. As kids, we're we're sort of given this free range of like anything you want to know and you're curious about, you can yes. know, and nothing's wasted. But then we become mm-hmm. adults, and it's sort of like, why is knowing every single dinosaur from every prehistoric period that ever existed, and whether they are herbivores or carnivores or omnivores, <laughs> like you shouldn't learn that because it means nothing and it won't serve you. And so I think having a child has really opened my eyes to sort of giving in to what does interest me and not necessarily always having to have a reason of why that information is going to help me. Just satisfying my own curiosity is effective and beneficial and good enough and valuable. Yeah. I love how you're thinking. And I I think that in your three-year-old son, the, the curiosity is part of this discovery, as we say, recovery, discovery, that at that age, he's just in that zone. Right. Well, I love that you talk about this miracle mentality because um, I remember when so many things are coming back to me for when I'm having, I have a toddler and I remember, you know, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was around his age, which is funny because um, I'm, that's one of the things he would like to be. Well, he specifically would like to be a paleontologist, but, um, you know, an archeologist, I also wanted to just wash dishes all day. I remember saying, and I wanted to be a singer and I wanted to be, you know, there were so many different things and, and it, and it, and it never felt 
magical to me as a kid. It was like anything actually did feel possible. And I think that's so, you know, I ask my son all the time and and he has a long list too. And there are so many things. He wants to be an engineer, a mechanic, a paleontologist, a plumber, a handyman. And like the list goes on and it's all the things he's interested in. And never would we ever, you know, think about deterring him from any of those. I mean, I I love how you said that though, because you said that it, it did not really like seem like it was so far out there that it was magical. And because I work with that word all the time, if you don't mind, I'm going to break it down. Please break it down. So to, to break down magical means extraordinary, uncommon, supernatural, not normal. So that is, that is magical. Okay. So the whole idea in life is to align ourselves with the magic that is really innate. It's in us. But what happens as we get older, we start to get hit by what I talk about in my new book, Miracle Mentality, with a bunch of mess. So the mess starts to splatter on my magic. (laughs) Yes. Right? And so more mess is splattering on my magic. Like, what? I got pimples? (laughs) I'm only 12. Or my, you know, my ears got too big or kids don't like me in school or I'm being bullied. So like mess starts to, you know, get splattered on my magic and all this pressure. My parents are having trouble. And, mm-hmm. and then the mess can turn into the, to the madness. And when you have mess and madness working within your mindset, now you have little tiny space for the possibility of playing in the magical. So when you're like two, three, four, five, this whole space is, can I play? Right. And you've probably done research on this, but it's it's such a great study of playtime. Yes. What do kids say? Can I play? But yeah, but then you got to eat. But then can I play? But yeah, then you got to go to school. You're in school now, remember? Yeah, but then can I play? Right. Yeah. Take me back to the magic. So is that with some of the work that you do is helping your clients adults as well, getting back into that magic and giving them sort of allowing them to give them the own selves permission to play more or to be 100%. So it's the recovery and the discovery at the same time. That's why so many people that you work with and I work with that are doing like extremely well will say to me, they felt happiest back when they were like in a small apartment in New York and didn't know what was going to happen. And they were just being creative rather than in their $26 million home in Beverly Hills. And he told me, I was more happy back when I was in New York in the little apartment on my grind. Right. No, that absolutely um, makes sense. And when you talk about magic and divinity, I'm wondering, what is the intersection of religion and spirituality? for you? And is that something that is a prerequisite? Do you feel for everyone? Or have you also worked with people that maybe are not as connected? Uh, it's to such a great word of the prerequisite. I have not heard that since college. <laughs> well, I, I've been stuck in the academic world for so long, been going to school for so long. I mean, okay. now I'm out, I'm out of it for a while, but I still am programmed with that language. <laughs> no. So I consider myself a spiritual person, but not a religious person. Mm -hmm. 
even though I've come from a certain faith background and am an ordained minister, I see myself as a servant and a humanitarian. So I don't think that one has to adhere to a certain religion or a certain faith to understand miraculous thinking mm -hmm. and magical things. Because I, again, whether, however it got in you, it's in you. I think as a human race, however it came in your mind, we're magical. Mm -hmm. We're up to some stuff, boy. <laughs> I like that. We are up to some stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like right now, I'm cooking in the kitchen. Boy. I'm, I'm up to stuff that works. What is an exercise or a question, your favorite, one of your favorite questions or exercises that maybe you do with your clients that really is something you find effective and motivational or, or sort of helping them come to this like aha moment? Okay. I think that you know this as from your studies. We talk a lot about triggers, but many times we talk about them in the negative triggers that happen. Like you were dating somebody, you used to listen to that kind of music, maybe you should change that music because it triggered you. Mm. Or you were dating that actress and now she has a billboard on Sunset Boulevard. Probably don't go down Sunset. <laughs> go down Santa Monica. <laughs> That's funny, right? Yes. <laughs> I help people trigger themselves in the positive. Mm. I'm triggered by Motown music in the positive. Because as a kid, Motown music, Stevie Wonder, who's one of my great friends today, Smokey Robinson, who's one of my great friends today, but at that time I was just listening to them, Diana Ross and the Supremes, all that is part of my lower income, little Timmy with a dream background. So I listen to this kind of music a lot. It triggers me to little Timmy with my big Afro and a dream. I love this, by the way. This is exactly like I... Okay. I'm someone that uh, I feel very connected emotionally and physically. And so when I when I have an experience with someone that I feel is like, yes, that's so in line. It's It, it totally makes sense. It's what I'm doing. I kind of... I get the chills. So I have the chills right now. Um, that is exactly what I practice. And I love this idea of um, sort of reframing and reclaiming the word trigger. Um, yeah. And you're right. Absolutely. Triggers can be positives. And, and it's sort of this idea that, that I talk to people about and I say, if this one thing brings you joy and it doesn't harm you or anyone else, yes. why not just do it? more, do more. Like some of my prescription is like more joy. And it's like so interesting to see someone working through that and being like, really? Oh my gosh. That's so, like, yeah. Like I could just do that. I could just yes. listen to this music because it makes me happy. And like that could be in and of self, like a intervention. And for me, music is a really big tool and one of my resources in my toolbox as well. And I often talk about a lot of people listening probably have heard me say this a hundred times, but it is my one of my biggest and best resources to sort of shift and uh, is to wake up in the morning. And the first thing I do, and I call it wake up and dance, is just to dance. Yeah. Yes. And music for me, and I'm not, you know, a professional dancer by any means. And I told myself I'd stop saying I'm not a dancer because I think everyone can be a dancer. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's not something I ever, I'm not talking about, you know, um, 
coordinated dance. I mean, I'm just talking about putting on music and just moving and feeling free and, and sort of shaking it out. I like, I like how you're thinking. And as you're doing that, it it brings you back to that place of innocence where your three-year-old son is. Absolutely. To the place of, of innocence of that, the place of, you know, I believe I'll just say this story just will take me a minute and a half. (laughs) Please. So Walt Disney walks into an amusement park in the thirties and he says to his friend, the way the story goes, it's just him and the friend. He tells his friend someday, which I love someday projecting, I am going to build my own amusement park, but mine's going to be different, better, and more magical. (laughs) Now I like this kind of thinking. That's how little kids think. Right. That's awesome. But I'm going to do mine. It's going to be different, better, more magical. 1955 Disneyland opens. But if you really get into real study of all the opposition that he went through, he needed you as his coach to help him with resilience. (laughs) Because he gets turned down financially. Things are looking bad. People won't sell the properties that he needs. All he sees is orange groves. That's why they call it Orange County. Mm-hmm. He sees orange groves, but beyond he sees Disneyland. Mm. See, I think this is so powerful. Different, better, more magical. He did it. 1955, he opens it up. Then they put this sign. You talk about faith, the happiest place on earth. Mm. <laughs> yes. Why do our kids want to go there? Because it feels magical. Absolutely. And it really, and why do adults want to go there? Because it's magical. magical. And it really, it is honestly one of my favorite places on earth. And it does, it allows, it's, it's a setting, it's a trigger that allows you to be in a state of joy and magical thinking and a miracle mentality. So I completely, I think that that is such a cool response. And so I guess I'm hearing that one of your favorite exercises or questions or things to do with the client is is really to find out what are those happy, joyful triggers. 100%. What are they? Right. And do more of them. Yeah. It could be uh, watching cartoons, watching the Jetsons, watching the Flintstones. Thank you so much for coming on to Looking Up. And I know you have your new book out. If you would like to mention where people can find it and where they can find you. Yes. And thank you. And what a privilege to be on. Oh. Uh, so my new book is called The Miracle Mentality. It's with Harper Collins. And it's doing extremely well. It's, it's unusual that somebody buys like 100 books at a time, 1,000 books at a time. There's a reason. We've been in a pandemic and people want to tap back into miracles. So you can buy it wherever books are sold. I love that. Et cetera. Yes. And a really great reminder and encouragement out there for everyone to figure out what those triggers are for you. Those good triggers. Um, The last thing that we do on the show is if we were together, I'd have you pick your own card. But um, my assignment for you is going to be whatever random card that I pull from my things are looking up optimism deck of cards. And again, not something that you need to do right now. It's for you to take with you on this day and complete it. Yes, I will. (laughs) Okay. Professor. All right. Okay. This is yours. Mm. 
So, oh, this is one of my favorite exercises. And I have a feeling you probably do this already. So I'm excited to hear um, later on, check in with me uh, yes. how this went. Grab mm-hmm. something that you love to eat. It could be anything. Try and shift your focus away from any self-judgment or associations the food might start to conjure up. Focus on how thankful you are to experience your senses. What does it taste like, smell like, feel like, sound like, and look like? This is one of my favorite mindfulness activities. I love it. It brings the joy back to eating, which is, by the way, a very joyful thing. So let me know how that goes. I love it and I will do it by the end of this night. Perfect. I promise. And then (laughs) we have mutual friends, so we're going to all connect. Absolutely. And yes. (laughs) But if I could just say this, you're so good at what you do. Oh my gosh. And seriously, you're so good. And no wonder people are coming to you, gravitating towards you. And thank you for working so hard on this subject of resilience and that we could really be optimistic and have a great life because that's what we're called to have. So I love your work. I want to say that. Uh, the feeling is so mutual. I'm like I told you, I uh, when I like feel this connection with with someone, I get like the chills and I have it throughout our whole session. I think we have so much in common and yes. our work really has so much synergy, but you truly inspired me and got me excited about my day. And so I love that. And I'm so glad we were able to connect. And I really look forward to connecting more for sure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.